Welcome to the Action Network Podcast, the number one show for the invested sports fan. All right, here we go. What's up, Degenerate Nation? Welcome to the Action Network podcast. It's the final college football betting preview of the season. And we're talking national championships. Obviously, LSU Clemson. We'll also throw in a little talk about the FCS championship on Saturday in one of the best betting weekends of the entire year. If you hate bowl games, go listen to NPR. Four NFL divisional round games an FCS championship game, and then on Monday you have the college football playoff national championship. And uh, Colin and I will be in Vegas for all of it. Uh, when do you get in, buddy? I'm getting in Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. But, we, you know, like we, you and I were talking about this pre-pod. Uh, I'm over here in, in, in Oklahoma, and we got some bad weather coming in, some possible snow and, and some ice and sleet. And the FCS championship is just a couple-hour drive away down in Frisco. And, uh, you know, there's going to be some weather down there for that too. Teaser alert. Um, we'll get to that. And what a weekend we have in store. And it's just a great matchup between two prolific offenses. And we're going to break it all down here. We're also going to talk with Brody Miller who we've talked to all season of The Athletic, who covers LSU. We'll get some of his quick thoughts on the game. We're going to go through props, matchups on both sides of the ball. But we'll start with – and by the way, we're going to give away our second annual Action Network podcast gambling Heisman Trophy winner. There's there's an underdog on the list. Five. We have five finalists. We'll get to them all. Last year, the winner was Trevor Lawrence, and it was – you know, obviously you have to be on a team that dominates against the spread to win the Action Network podcast, gambling Heisman Trophy. So we'll get to that. I don't know who Colin's going to vote for. I know who I'm voting for. And uh, if there's a tie, we're going to have to we're going to have to duke it out here. All right. But let's start with the national championship. As of right now, the total is sitting at 69, 69 and a half still. And LSU is a five and a half point favorite. S&P makes this line two and a half. You make it a pick. I actually make it a tad over three. And I artificially bumped LSU just for being LSU over the past month because I can't catch up. Regardless, no matter what numbers you look at, this line is inflated. I don't think anyone understands lines or makes their own lines would disagree with that. This line is probably a pick if this game was played a month ago. Maybe LSU minus one, one and a half. You have some home field advantage. Um, The crowd will definitely be on their side. But this line is clearly inflated. And something to keep in mind is I was talking with another friend of the podcast, John Murray, earlier today. And I was asking him what he needs. And he was saying, you know, that there's everyone in the world is on LSU. If Clemson wins outright, it will be their biggest win as a book since, since Mayweather when he fought McGregor. Wow. That's how big it will be. Now, that includes futures wins, too, which they, they win on futures. But that's how big of a decision it'll be for them. They said the decision will be absolutely mammoth. If Baltimore, Kansas City, 
and San Francisco all win in the NFL. If they all win straight up, there are so many parlays that are going to be tied to LSU that the liability is going to be huge. So I'd sit at five and a half. I don't think, you know, it's in a semi-dead range as far as coming down if it comes down to five, you know. So I'm going to take a piece of Clemson just because this line is so high. And then I'm going to try to get LSU live right away. I do think LSU wins, but at the end of the day, it's just a numbers game. But if all that happens, you're going to see this line rise. So I'm going to wait to see what I can get based on the NFL results of the weekend. So, And when I talked to Johnny, so basically we just need one of these big favorites to go down, not only for all the NFL parlays, but for all the parlays that will be tied to LSU. He said the Texans beating the Chiefs or the Titans beating the Ravens would be lovely, but the Vikings beating the 49ers would also work and is probably more feasible. So that's the report from a sportsbook's perspective. The line is definitely inflated. I think the total is a tad high just for a national championship. You got to remember where it's being played. On, and, you know, I think it's going to be a close game. So these offenses can just go back and forth. But the way that I think it's going to play out, but before we get to that, let's, let's, let's catch up with Brody, who we have on the line uh, of the athletic. And then we'll get into our thoughts. Well, you know, first of all, we're coming. Any questions? All right. So, Brody, one of the places that I want to start before we get into X's and O's, one of the narratives that you'll hear, you know, for the case for Clemson is they've been here before, right? And they've had the experience of playing in a college football national championship. Now, I know during interviews of players, every, all the players and coaches are going to say the right things, right? Like it's just another game, blah, blah, blah. But are you getting any feel or sense that you know this team so well of how they're handling this moment um, as if it's just another game? Or could the stage, you know, cause a little nerves or jitters early on? Yeah, I kind of point to uh, – I thought it was an interesting comment Kirby Smart made before the SC championship game. You know, he kept getting questions about, you know, oh, you know, George is more used to the SC title game than LSU is. Do you think that's an advantage? And he kind of laughed and he was like, I mean, maybe, but at the end of the day, LSU has played – at Alabama, at Texas, they played. They played. You know, Auburn, Florida, all these teams. I mean, playing at the highest level isn't really that new to them. And you know, I think there's something to the idea that Clemson has. You know, that that is a, something that's important. But I, I kind of tend to agree to Kirby Smart's point that you know, at the end of the day, they've been tested on the biggest stages, and this is about to be a home game in their own environment. I always go back to also the comparison between last year's LSU team going into the Alabama game and this year's because last year that team looked tight. That team looked nervous. Not nervous, but really pent up and really just kind of anxious going into that game. This year there was just more of a a general confidence, just a, a calmness, just a, you know, Ed O'Jean wasn't pushing as hard. It was just an idea of belief that they're the better team. That's the same kind of thing I've seen this year. They're, this is a team that just is just kind of sure of itself, and it's a coach that's more sure of himself than I think I've ever seen him, and I think that's my, my, my long-winded answer to your question. And, you know, the, the thing is, is they were loose by the time they got into that bowl game against Central Florida last year. I mean, the, the number of passing attempts and how, you know, throwing it down the field. And uh, and we all know the story by now that Coach O had, ta- had told Insmaker way before, like, we got to go to a spread attack. We've got to go to a spread attack. And they just seemed more comfortable by the time that they got to that point. But this kind of brings something up for me, for somebody who might be stiff. Michael Divinity is going to play in this game. He's missed a long number of games. Is this a boost for his team or is this a place for Trevor Lawrence to target? That's a good question. I mean, I don't think he's going to see the field more often than third downs. I mean, he's going to be back on their third down package, but even before the suspension, he was not a three down player anymore. He had kind of been marginalized. I mean, don't get me wrong. He is a very, very good pass rusher, but he's not a guy you can can trust there that often. So, I mean, my guess is you'll see him LSU on third downs. What what Dave Aranda basically always goes to is their cheetah package, which is basically one true defensive lineman, five lines 
linebackers and four of them are more pass rush types and then five defensive backs. And that's really where you'll see divinity. I mean, if, if you see them go base, which they might a little, if they go base, yes, that's the area for Trevor Lawrence to attack. There's no doubt about it, but I just wouldn't expect to see them go base too often. That's true. We see, I mean, I've seen in the formations with what Aranda does on third down about how he's able to go from one down lineman and just kind of switch it up and try to confuse. But is the really the whole handicap on that side with the defense and the offense? Let's just, let's just call it a wash on the outside with how good the lockdown corners are for LSU. And the fact that we just saw Ross and Higgins get shut down to like four yards per catch uh, against Ohio state. Let's just say it's a wash on the outside. Just looking at, you know, the passing charts and the efficiency of LSU on the outside does this really come down to ETN and Grant Delpit one-on-one, like in between the hash marks? I mean, is that really the battle? You know, it's funny. I hadn't really thought of it from that specific way of thinking of, but I think that's a really good way to put it because I think this is a pretty good Clemson line. It's one of the better ones LSU will face this year, but I don't think it's necessarily an elite one. I think, you know, LSU's linebackers are good, not great, but I think the huge piece will be and I'm not sure if it's Delpit specific, but I think the huge piece is what does Dave Aranda do with his safeties? Does he does he go with, you know, too high safety something to, to worry about those receivers? Does he go with that cover one? He's done a good amount where he where he actually goes with a three safety look and basically gets Delpit and Stevens both down in the box like extra linebackers. I'm really interested to see, you know, what he respects more. And I think that'll be very telling early in the game. I do think the Delpit matchup with Etienne is a really good point because yeah, I think this defense has changed the second that Grant Delpit's gotten healthy. I think you know, it might be a little overly simplistic, but there is some truth to it that once Delpit got back to himself, it changed everything Aranda could do with the defense and even just changed how the defense played itself. So I think there is some, uh, some relevance to that for sure. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, when you're handicapping a big game like this, whether it's in the NFL playoffs, college football playoffs, or college football national championship, is that you can't just look at the regular season because these games are so big, and especially with extra time to prep, you know, these coaches are going to come out with a completely new look a lot of times. You know, we saw it last week with the Vikings. Zimmer comes out, he puts his two best D linemen up in the middle and blows up the pocket, things like that. And they, you know, they play a different defense on the back end. So if let's put, you know, our, our thinking hat on, which is what you have to do. If you were Clemson, how would you attack this LSU defense? Is it in the slot? Is it trying to go really, really, you know, super fast rocket tempo and try to wear out the D line, the interior of the D line? Um, where, where do you think the weakness is and where do you think Clemson will try to attack? Yeah, I don't think tempo, I mean, obviously it might help. I don't think tempo trying to tire them out is necessarily the best move because they're actually surprisingly deep on the defensive line. For example, they literally have what they consider six starters and they rotate all three of them every single series, no matter what. But the middle of the field has been, if you look at this entire season, that's the area you can tack LSU. I mean, if you really watch the Georgia game closely, Georgia actually got looks in the middle of the field. They just kind of either from miss or it was a receiver dropping a pass, but they got looks in the middle of the field. That has been the story. So as, yeah, as much as we're talking about Ross and Higgins, I think a guy like Amari Rogers might be somebody to watch because he's the slot guy who might be able to do some damage in the middle of the field. That's, that's usually where you'll see teams make an impact. But uh, in just the grand scheme of how I would attack LSU, I, I, I've been trying to figure that out for a while, but I kind of go back down to, I think the run game and passing in the middle of the fields are probably your only real advantages. Cause you know, as Colin said, I kind of have a gut feeling it's going to be a wash on the outside. 
I've read Grace Rayner's piece and I've read your piece and your guys' combined piece and, it, and there's some overlap with what I put out on Action Network uh, this morning, which is where exactly these teams are going to attack each other. And I think we all kind of agree that, you know, the slot receivers could have some success going over the middle and that the outside might not be the way to go. And I have to ask this, it's, I mean, you're closer to the team than I guess anybody could be besides actually being on the team. And I, I kind of laugh about this, but could LSU I've seen this I've seen this elsewhere and I've seen it in the numbers like if they're running pistol and there's no motion it's going to be a run if there's motion and there's this kind of formation and Jefferson's in the slot they're going to throw a pass you know uh, you know there's all kind of, Jamar Chase gets over half the play action passes it just seems like LSU is extremely predictable in pre-snap motion and pre-snap formation about what it is that they're trying to do so I guess the question that I'm going to ask is is LSU going to try to change that up? Because, I mean, we're talking like 80% tendencies to formations and motions. Or are they going to pull a Trevor Lawrence and try to have Joe Burrow take off in some of the first series, some of the first drives to pull in some of those back seven from Clemson and then open it up for everybody that's on the outside for, for Burrow to throw to downfield? Yeah, I think I have two quick answers to your question. I mean, one, I don't know if I expect some drastic changes just because it's been the story of this whole season. They're not a very complicated offense. I'm glad you pointed out all those things. And every defensive coordinator gets asked about, opposing a defensive coordinator gets asked about, oh, man, I mean, are you worried about this, this Joe Brady scheme and how genius is he and all that? And by the way, I think he's really, really good. But they're not that complicated. They're just really good at countering exactly what you're doing. You know, it's, it's as simple as, and that's what they always have to try to explain to us when we try to ask these questions. They say, it's not rocket science. Joe Burrow and Joe Brady and, this, and Steve Ensminger are just really, really good at decision-making, processing, and seeing what you're doing and going exactly where you're not. So Auburn's the best example. You know, Auburn did that, that fasting 317 defense. It worked for a quarter or so. And then they said, okay, the box is open. We're going to run it. So I, I don't know if they're going to change that much, but then I'll get to your second question, which is, I always say for every one of these matchups they've had, their ace in the hole is, do they want to run Burrow? Because they save it. Joe Burrow, I mean, you guys know as well as I, is a very, very good runner, but they just do not want to use it. One, because they haven't had to, but two, just, I mean, he's your Heisman quarterback. You don't want to hurt him too much. And he's somebody who doesn't know how to avoid hits because he wants to take hits. So it's a little scary. But the only time they've really, truly turned to it this season was around the second half of the Alabama game. When things started getting a little dicey, they went to it and he broke two or three huge runs that, not huge, but really decisive runs that kind of put the game away so if things do get dicey at all it's the last game of Joe Burrow's career they have nothing to hold back I would not be surprised at all to see them turn to that thanks again as always for joining us Bertie we love having you. before we let you go anyone that people you think is going to have a big game that might be undervalued from the prop perspective and what's your prediction who wins and you know throw out a final score I'm not even saying I'm predicting a big game, but the matchup I really want to see is Caleb on chase on against this Clemson offensive line. That's it's, there's so many great matchups in this game that that matchup has been the least discussed, but I mean, this is a good Clemson offensive line against an LSU front four that I actually don't think, I don't think it's elite, but it doesn't get as much credit. It's kind of somewhere in between. I want to see if Caleb on chase on can create some havoc, make life difficult for Trevor Lawrence with a four man rush. If they can do that, I'm going to be really interested to see what else you can do. But my, my overall prediction on this game is after everything we discussed, I feel like these are pre, two pretty overall even football teams. But, and I've been repeating myself a lot this week, but I just really, at the end of the day, think Joe Burrow is just at a level right now where we've seen him face all of the top defenses, many of the top defenses in the country, and every time he just adjusts counters and does what he has to do so right now I think he's playing at a level right now where Joe Burrow is just the tiebreaker and I kind of like LSU by you know seven maybe even upwards of 10 points does it go over under 70 
wonder, because here's my feeling on that. I have this weird feeling that both teams are going to move the ball on offense, but I think you're going to see a lot of field goals. I think these are two really smart defensive coordinators that are going to make stops when they need to in the, you know, inside the 30. So I have a weird feeling it's going to be the under here. And the Cade York bomb is coming, right? We know the Cade York 50-plus <laughs> bomb is coming. And yes, after a goal game, uh, LSU is going to make a higher percentage than Clemson. We do know That's that. A very good point. Man. All right, so thanks for joining us again, Brody. Enjoy the game this weekend. Thanks for all of your coverage this year, and uh, we'll be having you on maybe after the national championship, but definitely next year. We love your work, and uh, if you don't follow him at the Athletic, you're making a big mistake. So thanks again, buddy, and uh, enjoy the weekend, and Happy New Year. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. Take care. All right, thanks again to Brody for joining us. Um, and, you know, we kind of alluded to this a few different ways throughout the interview, and this is why I kind of lean to the under a little bit, is based on how I think the game will play out. I think both defensive coordinators are going to really focus on slowing down both opposing quarterbacks. So maybe you see Clemson use one of, you know, that 3-1-7 that Auburn used. Now, LSU still gained a lot of yards, but they held him in the red zone. They only held him to 24 points. So maybe you see Clemson just try and take away Burrow. And on the other side, I think LSU is going to make sure that they take away those receivers. So I think that from a prop perspective, I think there are some vulnerabilities in the middle of the field and at slot, which we both talked about. But I think both backs running and both quarterbacks running are interesting from an over prop perspective. But I think if it's a running game, you know, and, and both defenses are allowing the run and, you know, they, they stiffen up in the red zone, as Brody alluded to, then you can get an under here. But it's scary as hell. So those are some of my thoughts on – the side and the total. Let me get your overall thoughts before we break this thing down. I think the first place to start is with the market, and then we can go on both sides of the ball because, you know, we everybody in the world right now is churning out the, it's too big, it's too big. Well, if it's too big, then why hasn't it come back, right? Why hasn't there been enough uh, big boy betters and enough whales to come in and knock this Clemson number back down? We're expecting, the timing is real interesting because there's going to be a wave of money on Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, the NFL is going to part, you know, have their games and then that'll dictate what book's liability is uh, as far as leading up to what is perceived to be a ton of LSU parlay money coming into this. And you're right. I, I'm sure John Murray kind of talks for the other books. I mean, there was never a cracker in opening for any of us to get into Clemson Futures this year. I mean, you're just not going to go – to the Westgate in June and take a, a, a plus 250 on Clemson to win the national title and hold that ticket, you know, for like nine months. It's just, it's not going to happen. But let's start with the market here. It's pretty easy to know how we got up to this and how so many people are on LSU. Uh, LSU has 11 scoring opportunities against OU, 692 total yards, just a demonstration, something you could cut and put on YouTube and say, this is how you should run your offense. OU didn't have their, have Ronnie Perkins. They only had one sack on the game. And OU was held to just a 15% passing success rate. LSU could not have looked any better in a playoff game in a semifinal. Clemson, on the other hand, only a 61% postgame win expectancy over Ohio State. Uh, Clemson had zero turnovers to two for the Buckeyes. They did pick up. Yeah, that postgame win expectancy doesn't account for the overturned call. Or the fact that Dobbins was caught or the fact that Sean Wade was thrown out. like Drop touchdowns. Or the drops. So. Yeah, I'm not sure Clemson should be here. I think right? Ohio State wins that game more than 50% of the time if they well, play the same exact way with the uh, call, especially the call going the way I think it should have went. A pod for you and I in seven or eight months is going to be that Ohio State should have won the game. They're probably going to win the game in next year's championship, but that's you know that's for us to talk about next year. Uh, you know, Ohio State's up 16-0. to zero. Uh, They're getting field goals instead of touchdowns, and, and that kills all six of their scoring opportunities. And I think the thing that I'll leave on with that Clemson-Ohio State game is huge dip in success rate for Ohio State in the second and third quarter, 27%, 35% 
it's a classic middle eight spot for Clemson, which we'll talk about later. But like we talked, I talked to, you know, I asked the question to, to Brody, Ross and Higgins were non-factors, whether they went out because of an injury or they were just shut down on the corners. That's going to happen again. I think, I think LSU is going to have plenty of success shutting out Ross and Higgins on the corners and, and it might be just the ETN and Trevor Lawrence show up the gut again. You know, looking at the market right now, there's lots of sixes out there. There's mostly five and a half to the sharp books. One book in Vegas is hanging a six and a half. If it's hanging six and a half by the time we land on Saturday, that might be my first trip. So, you know, like we said, wave of money expected on Friday. We'll see what happens on Monday. The last time I could find a favorite that was getting this much action, this many tickets, and this high profile of a game was Alabama's cover in 2016 against Washington, where Washington pretty much had to cover the entire game in the semifinal, and Bama had the late touchdown in, in the fourth quarter to, to make that a 17-point ball game. But uh, you know, as far as the market goes, that's where we're at. One other thing that I'll, I'll mention is that Brody disagreed with me here, but he actually agreed with me in what he said. He was saying that LSU's defensive line is deep, and they like to sub them, but these are – bigger defensive lineman. It's not like a Chase Young, right, that's going to dominate off the edge on their defensive line. If Clemson uses tempo, you know, and doesn't sub and prevents them from getting their subs in, this is one of the things that gives me pause with the under. Because, all right, if you look at what Ohio State did in that Clemson game, Clemson likes to use a lot of different looks. They like to sub guys. So when Ohio State went tempo, it gave Clemson some trouble. LSU used tempo against Georgia, really successful. So – the, the threat of that is what gives me some pause if you have these two explosive offenses that decide that the best course of action is to go tempo. But, yeah, so I get why the market is that is this high. But you're right. It's, it's surprising that there isn't some serious money, that everyone agrees that it's too high coming in the other side. The public money can't be that great yet. I mean, maybe there's people waiting in the weeds to see how high it gets after the NFL. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I'm doing myself, and I'm not – you know, the biggest better in Vegas that that's going to move the line. Yeah. But if you were, I, and uh, I, I said this on you better, you bet. I don't understand these guys that are betting a hundred grand at a certain shop in Vegas when they could literally take an $8 Uber and go get a point better, like for the same price. I don't know if it's like lunch buffet coupons or what the hell it is, but like you would want to get the best number. But I think you will agree with me that even though there's a six and a half flat lane out there right now, we would rather wait and get seven at 115 than buy up that six and a half right now, right? Yep. So I think yep. that maybe that's what everybody's waiting on. All right. So let's start. Yeah. Let's start when LSU has the ball. You know, this LSU offense has been pretty much unstoppable all year. The only time they were semi stopped is that Auburn game that I mentioned when Auburn played a 3 1 7. Um, you know, Georgia tried to use three man fronts and blitz, and it just nothing has stopped Burrow. He's so poised in the pocket. He doesn't turn it over. And, you know, I, I agree with you that I think that his legs are going to be big here. But I think the focus of Clemson is going to be shutting down that LSU passing attack. So I think it's Hilaire, big game. I think, you know, you might look at Burrow rushing props over. So that's what I'm looking at when LSU has the ball. Clemson's defense, the only test we've really seen from them this year is against Ohio State. And Ohio State did some things that made me think, you know, obviously this Clemson defense is excellent but that made me think that this Clemson defense isn't as elite as last year's. What are you seeing when LSU has the ball? I'll, I'll be brief. And if you want to get deep into these numbers, I did a write-up over at Action Network that really has some nice passing efficiency charts. Uh, it has a grid of where the defense is there, you know, has the highest success rate, where they could be weak, where Joe Burrow is going to be able to attack. And if you look at Joe Burrow, He's insane deep. I mean, he, he's 22 touchdowns to two INTs on passes over 20 yards. Uh, his sweet spot for throwing, though, his most success rate is between 0 and 10 yards in between the hashes or to the right hash. 
So I think the big question is, is where does Isaiah Simmons line up? Is he going to be, is he going to start off in the secondary? Is he going to line up over the slot on Justin Jefferson? Is he going to be looking for Jamar Chase deep? Is he going to be, you know, a spy on, Cl- on Clyde Edwards Halar? Is he, is he just going to watch things out of the backfield or are they maybe expecting Joe Burrow to take off uh, and surprise some people with a run like Trevor Lawrence did? All I know is, is Isaiah Simmons, they're not going to know exactly where to put him because Clemson's not a heavily blitzing team, as in they don't send the house. They send their down linemen. They're in a 4-3 in first and second down. They run a 3-3-5 in third down, and they send their down linemen and, and one extra guy. And I think maybe like 15% of the time they send, it, they send more than just one extra guy. That's it. So if the defensive line can get pressure, that's great. If not, Joe Burrow's going to tear him up. Nobody has had a quarterback rating, his, a quarterback rating better than Joe Burrow in the history that it's been tracked on PFF mm-hmm. than Baker Mayfield when there's been three seconds to show. Baker Mayfield's 2016 season is still the best. But Joe Burrow will tear him up if he gets three seconds. So it's interesting to see how they apply pressure because Clemson doesn't send the house. And where does Isaiah Simmons, where does he line up? Uh, his speech should mean everything. Now, I said this to Brody, and I mean, we all agree. You can detect the play pre-snap. If you're in 11 formation uh, and, you know, but, you know they're going to they're gonna run pistol, they're going to have motion, it's going to detect whether it's a run or a pass and exactly who it is you're going to try to go to. Now, one of the things I had in my write-up is how they've moved from the 11 formation to the 12 formation to get more guys in the box and have more protection around Joe Burrow over the last five games. So I'm not sure if that's just a thing to keep him clean so they can throw deeper or if that's you know Clyde Edwards-Alara's injury and they want to have more guys in the box to, to block. Uh, but there's been more than six players left in the box more than 40% of the time. And so that you know makes me think, is Clemson going to have enough guys in the secondary to cover, you know, this, this great passing attack that's torn everybody up. So I think LSU is going to tip their hand and Clemson's going to be able to defend that. They're going to know whether it's a run or a pass. And I think they're going to know exactly what Joe Brady's wants to do. And I think that's the way LSU has been all year. It's just that no one's been able to stop them. Joe Burrow's a dog, man. He ain't no puppy. He's a dog. So, uh, you know, the other thing I'll mention stuck is the offensive line. It's been in decline, and, and particularly it's been in decline with their center, Lloyd Cushenberry. His run disruptions have moved from 4.5% over the first nine games up to 14% over the last five games, which is roughly 250 snaps. That's not good. So if, if Isaiah Simmons is going to roam and he's going to attack certain gaps, the biggest weakness over the last five games has been the middle of the offensive line. Well, and their best offensive lineman, Damian Lewis, who got hurt in the Oklahoma game, hurt his ankle. He's going to play, which some were surprised about. But I think in, I think Orgeron said that, or someone in the LSU staff said that Marshall and, and Damian Lewis were both hurt in the Oklahoma game. But, I mean, Marshall most expected to play in this game, and he is. But I think Orgeron or someone on the staff said that he's much more along, he's much more further along than Lewis. who they, He's also going to play. But if he's not fully healthy and his ankle flares up and, you know, he's a little limited mobility-wise, and, you know, that's where the weakness and, – and their tackles aren't – elite they're good so how much pressure does Clemson bring or how much do they sit back do they have um, their best corner Terrell do they have him following around Chase or not they don't really normally do that so it'll be interesting from a scheme perspective what they decide to do because this LSU team you would think that it's the most explosive passing attack in the country if you just watch it but it's really not 
right? Like if you look at a lot of the numbers, it's just a really efficient passing tech that just gets guys wide open in space. And then, you know, they're really good after the catch. And, you know, obviously they'll take their shots and hit them. But this isn't a team that's out here bombing it every play. There's, there's two things we're going to be watching specifically. I am from the, very, from the very first snap. Not only where is Isaiah Simmons lined up and how is Venables going to use him to attack, but it's this sack rate rate of Clemson that's third in the nation. And we talk about, you know, OU is 15th in the nation in sack rate. They didn't have Ronnie Perkins. You look at Georgia, Auburn, Texas A&M, Alabama, nobody was ranked higher than 35th when it came to sack rate. Considering Clemson doesn't send the house, only one extra rusher besides the down lineman if they're able to get pressure on Joe Burrow with just that many, especially on third down when it's only four guys, this is just a completely different looking ball game because we've never seen LSU just be under complete duress the entire time. I believe in Burrow. This kid's a football kid. You know, sometimes narratives work. I'm going to get to a narrative on the other side of the ball, but he's going to do everything in his power to win this game. You know, and, and, and Brody said, like, look, he doesn't really like to avoid the hit. Coach on the football field, we're about to see what Joe Burrow's really made of. And anybody that knows our team, we're made of grit. He's going to scramble a lot more in this game. Uh, yeah, I truly I believe that. And I truly believe this game will be competitive, which means it's going to be close. And I don't think either team's going to blow the other out. So, you know, I think that he, he's going to be needed to scramble for big third downs. So I'm eyeing his, his rushing prop and rushing yards over. You agree or disagree yeah. there? Oh, I absolutely agree. After t- especially after talking to Brody, because I mean, if you hear Brody say that they only had to use Burrow and his feet in situations where they desperately needed it, like against Alabama, and you saw how good he is, you know, against Texas early in the season uh, when he has to get out of the pocket, and I, you have to just wonder if that's just a tool that they've had in the belt that they they have and they don't have to use unless they need it, and I think that they're going to need it in this game. You know, I think if there is a prop out there for Burroughs rushing yards, we absolutely have to hit the over after, you know, after the conversation we had with Brody. The toughest thing for me to do still is gauge how good this Clemson defense is, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's so much of it is based on priors because like, if you look at the red zone defense, it's ridiculous. Like they, but like, who do they really play this year? And then they play Ohio state, you know, you have a couple drops, two drops in the red zone that would have led to prop. One of them was a touchdown that got overturned. The other was a screen that was set up. So the first team that they play, there's real team. You know, it's kind of a smoke and mirrors box score, uh, hard to gauge. So a lot of it is based on priors, but they lost a lot of talent on that defense. So how much do I, but they, obviously they're reloading. So like, to me, that's the hardest thing to do because like I, I finally got a test for this Clemson defense and they kind of passed, but kind of didn't, you know, so, right. and the rest of the season, it's just, they were relying on their priors. And then obviously these kids are all, you know, they're the new Alabama, I, just four, five stars everywhere. It's really hard to gauge how good they are. And I'm talking like, the difference between like really elite and just elite, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and I think if we had a one hundred percent healthy Justin Fields who's able to scramble out of the pocket, we have a different semifinal game. So, uh, yep. but you know, I, I think that's the biggest question here is is Clemson going to be able to apply pressure without sending a blitz? Uh, where is Isaiah Simmons going to line up? Burrow's yards, Stuck and I both agree he's going to get him, but is it designed or is it uh, an effect of you know the scramble that he has to make outside the pocket? I think both. The biggest yeah. question is who do the Pac-12 refs have, right? I mean, oh, before God. we switch to the other side of the ball, I mean, this um, guy that's calling the game, you, uh, you live in Lexington. This guy, I don't think this guy's allowed in a bar anywhere in Lexington, Kentucky, throwing Benny Snell Jr. out of the Music City Bowl two years ago. It's one of the, it's one of the throws, worst he things I've ever Burrow seen. Out. He throws Burrow out the first minute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone's getting thrown out. There's going to be a personal oh, foul that man. shouldn't be called. There's going to be holding that shouldn't be called. Uh, so I, I did a deep dive. Who's LSU's backup? Miles Brennan. 
What was my? What was Brendan? How often did Brendan throw? We're gonna have to know. I mean, if Burrow gets thrown out by this ref, <laughs> Brendan put up here. Brennan was this year one touchdown, one pick, three hundred fifty yards. He's from Long Beach, Mississippi. There's a Long Beach, Mississippi. We're learning all kinds of new things here on this podcast. So but that's important with the Pac-12 refs. I mean, the main point is, is this is an all-star crew from the Pac-12. Uh, some research I did for our write-up over at Action was this particular head official was eighth in the power five and and yards per game. And three of the head officials above him were from the PAC 12. This is a PAC 12, PAC 12 all-star officiating crew. I think there's going to be more flags here and his tendencies were all for offensive holding defensive holding. He's good for one personal foul per game, expect something that shouldn't be called. And the fact that he threw Benny Snell out two years ago, it's one of the most outrageous things I've ever seen. The all-star Pac-12 ref crew. That's like taking a piece of dog shit and spraying it with cologne. Let's move on to when Clemson has the ball. Um, and now here, back to my narratives. You know, a lot of times you can find value in the market or just fading narratives. There's lots of narratives that are bullshit. Here's a narrative that I believe in that will come to fruition. ETN's really good. I think he's going to have a big day. I think he's going to hit some explosive runs. I don't think a lot of the player props are out yet, right? Have you seen any? Right, they're not. They're not. Travis Etienne, you know, he's obviously from Louisiana, right? He was the decision was either to go to LSU or Clemson, and idiots out there are like threatening his mom and and shit, which is ridiculous. But you know, obviously, back in Louisiana against LSU, you better believe that Dabo is going to get Etienne a touchdown. If this is first and goal at the one. ETN is getting in that end zone, and they're all going to go nuts with him, and you can just see it. I don't care what the price of ETN. I mean, I you know if it's ridiculous, but ETN to score a touchdown, that is happening in this game. Minus uh, 400. <laughs> uh, maybe not. I mean, I can't bet a ton on props, but I, I might lay it, you know, just for a little bet. Uh, he's getting in the end zone here in a game that should see a lot of points. I think he's going to break a run, but anywhere close to the red zone, they're going to have something drawn up for him either out of the backfield or getting in because Dabo is going to make sure that he's in the end zone. And by the way, it's unbelievable. Dabo, who I still don't know why he hasn't quit. He said he was going to quit. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, Dabo is like the king of us against the world, right? So it's like the – it's like the, he's like Tomlin, except he actually has capable scheming. He actually can scheme and, and coach. But he, he can rally a locker room. And he, he's played this card all year long, right? The, the same card. And now he gets to do it again. Even though this team has won like 30 games in a row, multiple national championships against a team that hasn't been in the national championships since 2011, but they're the five-and-a-half-point favorite. Disrespect card all over. This is like when Pat Fitzgerald was like, oh, you, you, this game doesn't mean anything to us. Look, Vegas thinks that we're the underdog and use that on a grander scale. He can play that card. Debo could play that card again. The disrespect card, which is what he's been playing all year, that's his, his MO. Um, so he gets to do it again here. But – 100% ETN is getting in the end zone. So that's I'll start there with Clemson offense, which, again, it's like, all right, who have they played all year? We know Trevor Lawrence is number one overall pick, most likely with barring injury, and hope he doesn't get hurt two years from now. It's crazy he can't come out. You probably have the two next two number one overall picks, the NFL draft, the quarterback going against each other here. We know how good Trevor Lawrence is. We know how good ETN is. And then this LSU defense, like the Clemson defense, is a bit of a wild card. You know, a guy like Stingley on the outside, outstanding corner. And, and both their their outside corners, I'm a huge fan of slot. And they mix up their safeties and put them in the slot and their slot and the safety. That's kind of the biggest question mark for me. And over the middle of the field. So I look at ETN, maybe go back to the well with some Trevor Lawrence rushing props and then Rodgers. I think Rodgers is the receiver you, you target here. But the LSU defense, the tr- 
you know, just trending so well. If you look at the last three games, just dominant. But this is a different beast. What do you see here when Clemson has the ball? I know that this doesn't rank up there on the on on the bullet list of highest things to do, but for Dabo to have a Louisiana player score a touchdown in the national championship in the Superdome, he can come down there on recruiting trips and say, hey, Louisiana, high school, five-star athlete, why don't you come play for me? Because I just had a national championship and I ran a guy just like you through the end zone for the national title. So, I mean, yeah, of course ETN's going to score. I, and, and I don't know what the price is going to be. It's going to be high and we're just going to have to pay it. As far as everything else with LSU, I mean, they've completely cleaned it up on defense. They gave up 30 points to Texas, Ole Miss, Vandy. They were starting to question Dave Aranda and how good are you? Why are we paying you all this money to coach our defense? And, oh, UNLV is interested in you. And he came out and said, listen, it's X's and O's. It's not X's and O's. It's bad angles. It's bad tackling. We'll get it cleaned up. And that missed really – Yeah, missed assignments. That really showed with Grant Delpit. Grant Delpit was not only hurt, he had missed 14 tackles through the first nine weeks. He's only missed one tackle in the last five games through 179 snaps. Amazing turnaround for him and how good he's been. And with this defense, I think the one thing that we got to keep in mind with how good Travis Etienne is and how much the Clemson does not turn the ball over, the one thing that nobody's talking about is LSU has only caused five fumbles the entire season. That still just boggles my mind. They're 119th in the nation and causing fumbles, just five. So, you know, if ETN was to, like, fumble and LSU was to, you know, cause that and scoop it up, that would be, like, one of the most high percentage unlikely things to ever happen. Or they're due. Or they're due. But, you know, it, it just hasn't been in the cards for them to, to strip and recover this year. Clemson is a different animal on offense than LSU. We talked about how LSU will tip by motion and formation pre-snap what LSU is going to do. Clemson's different. Everything is split evenly. Their run-pass split is pretty even in shotgun. 60% run pass, 60-40 when it's in motion. 70-30 in the pistol. That's different when I say 70-30 pistol run for Clemson because it's 89% for LSU. So you can't really look at what Trevor Lawrence is calling, how they're moving, and who's lined up where. And there's another thing that I'm going to get to because this gets to the end of the bet. But Clemson rotates their receivers. They train their receivers to be on the hashes, to be on the sidelines, to be in the slot to be in motion. Every single wide receiver in the rotation knows how to play every single one of the positions. So that's really important when we get down to the, you know, down to where we're going to be laying our props. As far as play action pass goes, LSU loves to hit Jamar Chase. He has accounted for half of their play action targets. Lawrence has hit nine different targets this year for Clemson. He will spread around. He will hit anybody. Unlike LSU has gone to a 12 formation and started bringing guys in the box to protect Joe Burrow, maybe because the offensive line has been allowing more pressure, Clemson just leaves five or six in the box 84% of the time. They are really good at protecting Trevor Lawrence. And we show, you know, we saw with against Ohio State, he can take off and make yards on his own, no problem. Clemson has the most efficient offensive line per sports source analytics, and they rank seventh in PFF. And if you get down to it single, you know, player by player, Jackson Carmine hasn't allowed a sack all season. There are half sacks, I think, the two half sacks that got counted and tallied towards him, but he has not been responsible for a sack. Jermaine Arkham, is, he's only allowed a few hurries this year. They are the most dominant run blocking unit in the nation. They're downfield blocking. There was a tweet that I put out about Travis Etienne against Ohio State where he just zipped through. If you look at that, three of their offensive linemen are blocking 15 to 20 yards down the field. It's one of the most unbelievable clips that I, that I tweeted out during the game, not because of Travis Etienne's speed, but because of the offensive linemen that were 20 yards down the field. Oh, and the receivers, too, blocking. Yeah. 
and the receivers just plowing Ohio State out of there. This is a per- great defense of Ohio State just plowing through them. Stingley and Fulton have been, you know, shut down corners all year. And I think that means Lawrence is going to go straight to the middle of the defense. Higgins, Ross, shut down against Ohio State. I think they can get shut down here. That's how good LSU's corners are. So if Lawrence is going to go over the middle, if you look at the efficiency chart of where LSU can be attacked and where Lawrence is comfortable throwing, it's the right slot receiver. The right slot receiver is the third most targeted position by Clemson's, uh, how many passing attempts Clemson has had this year. Lawrence completes 61% of his passes to the right slot receiver, and they have the highest yards per catch at 7.9 versus any of the other receiving pockets. And like I said, Clemson cross-trains all of their receivers. So we don't look at Ross. We don't look at Higgins. Even though Ross lines up in the slot and say a 10 formation, they don't run a 10 formation that much. So that gets you down to Amari Rodgers. DeAndre Overton, Joseph Nagata. Overton. Overton is the play. Last five games, Overton's had 16 targets. Last five games for 127 yards, and he's had 10 catches. So Overton is the play on the props. He will be the right slot receiver that has the most success, and that's where Trevor Lawrence is going to be able to dump it off to if he feels any pressure. Yeah, and Overton is not your, you know, if you're looking at the household names of the receivers for Clemson, you know, it's not Higgins. It's not Ross, right? These are the guys that are probably going to be priced the highest if you're just looking at a touchdown or over props, right? That these are these are the guys that, you know, everyone knows about and, and even Rogers. Now, the thing that I like, back to Narrative Street for Dabo, is <laughs> like Rogers, Ross, and Higgins, what, what are they? All, all three of them. They're all sophomores or juniors, right? They're all underclassmen. And, you know, if you look at a guy like DeAndre Overton, he has been senior. Yeah, he's been completely overshadowed. You know, this is a, a highly recruited kid out of Greensboro. You know, he and he's was, been pissed off about it too. I mean, he, he was not happy about it last summer. And he stayed the course. You mentioned that long run. Guess who was down the field blocking on that play? Overton. So this is a kid that I think that the out of the slot that they might have something drawn up for that LSU might not expect little reward for, you know, sticking with the program and just being overshadowed by these dominant receivers that have been there. And he's a senior and stuck it out. This is a kid who could have been a star on another team. So that, the Dabo narrative street, touchdowns, Overton, and ETN. Who we I think from re- an exit perspective, it makes sense too. We should rename the hallway from the elevator to the action uh, front door of the office. We should name it like Dabo's I, I, Way. I forgot about the recruiting. The recruiting, yeah, Dabo's Way. The recruiting angle too makes a lot of sense too. But it's just like Dabo wants to create – this like family atmosphere, right? And like, so he wants to reward a guy like Overton, I would assume, but especially ETN, man. I mean, getting threats and back in Louisiana and that that recruiting, ooh, that would be huge. All right, so ultimately you have these, you know, you look at matchups on both sides of the ball. Based on everything that you've seen, I mean, which defense and defensive coordinator, I mean, obviously you have Venables, one of the most well-known defensive coordinators in all of college football, and, and Aranda is the highest paid defensive coordinator um, in all of college football. Which defense do you think ultimately gets more stops and why? I think, I think Clemson's defense ultimately gets more stops because of Isaiah Simmons. There is not an Isaiah Simmons on the LSU defense. And there was a pass uh, that Ohio State scored on. Isaiah Simmons ran from the other side of the field and almost caught the guy taking it to the house for Ohio State. There's nobody on LSU's defense that's Isaiah Simmons. There's nobody that can close from the secondary to the line or from the line to the secondary like Isaiah Simmons. He's the true X factor. So I'm going to go with Clemson. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to me is if you look at the, you know, the special teams 
if these defenses are, as we alluded to earlier, getting stops in the red zone or close to the red zone, the, the difference could come down to the kickers. And, I mean, oh you have the LSE <laughs> kicker who's extremely reliable. And, you know, Potter, who, you know, he was really bad early in the year. And he's been a little bit better. Talking to Brody earlier and, and his, um, you know, his peer, Grace Rayner, had a, had a story out there about how BT Potter completely changed the swing of his leg. I almost, I almost went into a golf reference about how, you know, I'd use my nine iron at a different angle. And, uh, but he kind of changed things up midseason. It looks like he is three of seven for between 40 and 49, three of six between 30 and 39, and even four for five between 20 and 29. He has it all 74 extra points, so at least he's making those. But look, just like a couple field goals here or there, when a defense, you know, you get a couple stops inside the red zone, or not even the red zone, say between the 20 and 30, and a couple misses, maybe it makes Clemson go for it and they don't get it. Those are the kinds of things and why I always talk about special teams that can swing a cover easily. I, there, I have so much love for Clemson. I mean, I was betting these guys to win national titles years before the birth of the action network, it seems like. Uh, and the thing is, is when a kicker changes his, his whole entire process midseason, that makes me nervous. It makes me really nervous. We've always been able to rely on this group, especially when it comes to going up against Alabama, because Alabama's special teams and kicking has always kind of been the butt of a joke. Uh, and, and so I'm a little nervous with BT Potter. Uh, if you're going to back Clemson with your with, with your money, I would say if you're trying to lay a Clemson money line or if you have Clemson futures, which I have a few of, I'm nervous because of the BT Potter aspect completely. You know, that range from 30 to from 30 to 49 is, is not good. This will be out on Friday. And obviously, all the player props, they're not out yet, but we're going to be in Vegas. We're going to do a live show on Monday from the Westgate. So we'll cover off and we'll have some content on Action Network.com and the Action Network app as well with and- our specific props. But we give you an idea if you listen to this, basically you and I are going to be live. You and I are going to be live a couple times too. I think we're going to be joined by a few friends. We're going to turn the camera around and talk during the NFL and stuff. All right. So final, what are you invested in now? What do you plan on investing? So I'm going to be betting Clemson. I think LSU wins the game. I think it's close. It's, you know, from a pace perspective, you know, the the BT Potter thing does introduce some variance from the total too, because maybe Clemson says, look, we got to, we were playing against this juggernaut on offense. So if we're at the 30 and it's fourth and three for the 25, we're going for it right, instead of a normal field goal. And then it, the reason it is variance is like, all right, if they get it, and then they're seven instead of three. If they don't, then it's zero instead of three. Like, it's just – so seeing how aggressive these teams are going to be should be interesting. And then the, the pace, too. That's what makes the total tough. So I, I probably will stay away from the total because, like, part of me says – I could see why they would want to go pace, but then part of me says like either one of these teams want to keep the ball in the other's hands. I, I, don't, I don't know. So I kind of want to see how it plays out. If there's a bunch of scoring early, you know, maybe I'll look at a live under. If, there's, if it's slow, maybe I'll look at a live over. So I think I'll be looking at the total live from a side perspective. It's just too high from a number, and there's going to be some scoring. So I think there's going to be an opportunity for me to get LSU. So maybe I'll throw LSU money on it with something, but the line, I can't not take Clemson, especially once this thing gets to six, six, and I have maybe seven. Then um, I obviously have no futures left. I have a bet down on Clemson at six, and and I actually have another bet down at circa at four and a half. So I'm invested in Clemson, but it's it's nothing big. And and to give you the, I mean, I was asked on you better you bet by Nick Costos like what my volume was, and I can tell you that if it gets to seven, I'll probably have a bet four times as large as what I have invested on Clemson right now. So if I can get a seven and minus 115 or whatnot, if that's what happens to fall on Monday, if that's what happens to fall late Friday as the money starts to roll in on this game, if I can get a seven, I'm going to go hard on Clemson. 
I think you're exactly spot on when it comes to how to handle the total. This is going to come in flurries. I think people need to realize that Coach O, the last three regular, regular season games, he wanted the ball first. He wanted Joe Burrow on offense first on the field scoring points. Now, he wanted to put confidence into his team against OU, confidence into his defense against OU. They put the defense on the field first. What they did is they had a three and out from OU and then everything went off from there. I'm not sure that's exactly how this goes. Now, if you flip over the Clemson side and you look at some of their biggest games, the 2017 national title game, they won the coin toss. They deferred. They wanted the ball second half. 2018 Cotton Bowl against Notre Dame, they won the toss. They deferred. Clemson won the game, won the ball in the second half. This is such a huge betting aspect to Clemson, which is called the middle eight. So the middle eight was created by Sports Source Analytics, where they track the point differential of the last four minutes of the first half, the first four minutes of the second half. Clemson is not only number one in the nation this year at plus 6.6 for a point differential, they are the top rated middle eight team of the entire college football playoff era since 2014. They Huge. are the best at in-game adjustments, clock management, execution, holding the ball and managing the clock and scoring at the end of the second quarter, getting the ball, making sure they own that coin flip, deferring whatever it takes, have the ball to start the second half. Their, their middle eight rank is superior to any other program. Let me give you an example. Not only oh, since 2014 does Clemson own everybody in middle eight at plus 4.4. The team that is in second place is at plus 2.9. That's Ohio State. That's how big. And then the gap after that is all plus 2.9, plus 2.8, plus 2.7. Clemson is a point and a half better in the entire lifespan of the college football playoff and point differential in the middle eight. It's just so automatic for them. And for some reason, as a better, like most of us betters know this. We know Venables makes his adjustments. We know the offensive game plan changes. But now to see it just laid out analytically in a chart to where they know what to do with the coin toss. They know what to do with their drive in the second quarter. I mean, you look at all these examples of, of Kelly Bryant against Auburn. You look, at, you look at them being down 14-0 to Alabama in the national championship a couple of years ago. The investment that I have pregame, if it gets to seven, yeah, I'm going to put a lot more on. But I'm completely prepared at the beginning of the second quarter to see LSU only have 14 points on the board or only have a 17-3 lead, and for me to be completely ready to fire on Clemson, especially if Pac-12 refs want to get involved, and especially if Venables, if we have a noticeable difference in Isaiah Simmons floating around doing something different and confusing Joe Burrow. And I was, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of the podcast, Sports Cheetah, last night. He said, listen, if LSU does not score their first two drives, they're going to lose. They're going to lose. I mean, if, Cle- if Clemson's leading the ballgame after the first quarter, the, the, the adjustments that they make, I can't imagine LSU, you know, making their adjustments and beating Brett Venables. So I'm completely ready to live bet Clemson on the middle eight, which has historically been such a fabulous idea. Now, what do you think Why? LSU does if they win the toss? If you think that they're going to win the ball and Clemson is not, but maybe LSU knows what Clemson wants to do and they'll defer? Or do they want to be like, is, yeah, let's burrow. I want Burrow on the field. Got to look at what win. LSU has done. I, I'm assuming they always take the ball when they win. They did. They did in the regular season. In the SEC championship, Georgia started first with the ball. LSU won the toss against OU, and they put the def- they wanted their defense on the field. But in this scenario, you've got to know that Dabo wants the ball in the second half so bad to start off that you automatically have to defer. I think you have to. against. If I'm coaching against Clemson, I'm deferring. Put Trevor Lawrence on the field. And then go tell my defense I believe in you to beat up Trevor Lawrence. But I'm telling you right now, LSU wins that toss, and they put Joe Burrow on the field, that's a good thing for Clemson. That's a good thing for Clemson live betting. It's a good thing for Brett Venables. So – Pay attention to the coin toss. 
There's no question about that. It's going to be on. <laughs> like I said, we're going to have live show Monday. We'll have more content. We'll have a huge preview. Connor has pieces out. So make sure you check that out. But before we get out of here, let's go three and out. One, two, three. Let's make it a quick three and out. We do have to hand out our Action Network podcast gambling Heisman Trophy. And now, the presentation of the Gambling Heisman Trophy. Awarded to the most outstanding Division I player whose athletic excellence best enabled the pursuit of monetary gain through the art and science of wagering on college football. Now, the finalists, we're going to go teams first, and I'll list the player that comes with the team because the you know, covering is all that matters around these parts. Clemson, 11-3 and three against the spread. Last year's winner, Trevor Lawrence. He won it last year, so we're not going to – he's not back here. Yeah, he's he, he's in the running, but he's last year's winner. Travis Etienne is the representative for Clemson. Kentucky, 10-3 and three against the spread. Lynn Bowden Jr., obviously, who moved to quarterback and just dominated against the spread all year and was just so fun to watch. Similarly, Malcolm Perry – it's just a hell of a turnaround for Navy, who was so dreadful last year. They finished 10-3 and three against the spread, covered another bowl. Uh, so Malcolm Perry, Oregon State, 9-3 and three against the spread. Jake Luton, this is a surprise. Um, yes. We're not giving it to Jake Luton, but 28 touchdowns and three interceptions <laughs> on the year. Uh, you won't even consider it. You won't even consider it for a half second. No, no Beavers uh, gambling Heisman. No, and, and, by, and by the way, because and Oklahoma State is the yeah. – Fifth team that finished nine three and one against the spread, and you know you could go Sanders, you could go Tylen Wallace, but obviously you got to go with Hubbard, the leading nation's leading rusher. But they were nine three and one against the spread. I'm not going Hubbard. I mean, he was in the Big Twelve, Luton in the Pac twelve. Plus, they only had nine covers. I'm throwing them out. I'm taking unless you want. Do you want to make your case for Luton? Yeah, I think I want to do a process of elimination because I think I know where you're going, and I, you don't know where I'm going. And okay. since I think I well, you agree that they have nine. That that's the easiest thing to do. We could throw out Luton. We're, we're yeah, we're throwing out Luton and Oregon State. We will look at them next year. Wonderfully coached, great turnaround. Didn't make a bowl. They probably will next year. All right, and then we're oh, throwing out we're throwing out Oklahoma State. We're okay. throwing out Oklahoma State. They're going to be back. Uh, I, they'll be back against the spread. They're going to be a contender next year. You know, we're going to get Spencer Sanders back. We'll see what happens with the other players. But yeah, we're going to throw Oklahoma State out too. I'm throwing Navy out. They did not go ten and three against the spread because of Malcolm Perry. We've known about Malcolm Perry. It's the defense. And the defense, yeah, defensive defensive line. improvement. Yeah, I agree. And the winner is Lynn Bowden Jr., obviously. He was in the SEC. The Kentucky had a much tougher schedule. Clemson played nobody all year. Look, what Bowden did, he was the team's leading receiver, the team's leading rusher, and then he ended up being the for the year. And then he was their quarterback who came in, dominated against the spread, and then in the bowl game, covered on a last second touchdown pass. And his team finished 10-3 and three against the spread. Uh, BBN, what up? And I'm paying homage to my Kentucky people. I didn't lose really that many season win totals at all. Generally do really well in that department. I did not win Kentucky. Your Kentucky Sports Radio guys on some of our pods in the summer. We just cannot believe the returning production loss, especially on defense. And then Benny Stell Jr. We, I didn't see this coming whatsoever. You know, I thought Kentucky, you know, win total under was good. Thanks to the Action Network Heisman Trophy winner, Lynn Bowden Jr., they, they sailed over, over their win total. What Stoops has been able to do there, I, I'm just, I'm so impressed because there was a time where he was being laughed at below a level of Brett Bielema, and now he is just 
he's doing above and beyond what I think anybody at the Kentucky program thought that could be done there for a football team. Uh, so congrats to Kentucky. Congrats to, to Lynn Bowden Jr. Uh, I mean, costing me money when I had Virginia Tech in the bowl game too. It has to be him for the Heisman Trophy from the Action Network. There you go. Congrats to Lynn Bowden for winning our second annual Action Network podcast gambling Heisman Trophy. All right, so let's move on to second down, and we're going to do some happy trails here, just saying goodbye to some teams that mainly tortured me. Uh, so basically, I'll do the, the first two. You can do the last two. Akron football, I hate you with all of my heart. And then they finally covered, and I didn't bet them. But they didn't cover. They were the first team ever to start 0-10 against the spread. Uh, they finally covered in their 12th game. At least I had the under in that game. Uh, but they were beyond bad. Looked like they were shaving at times bad. I'll never forget the game against Buffalo when I had the plus 17 and a half. And the game should have ended like 7 nothing. And the only way I wasn't going to cover, no one could move the ball, heavy wins, was if Akron gave up two touchdowns, went on offense, and that's what happened. They fumbled it in this big scramble at midfield. They were actually moving the ball. Buffalo guy pops out with it, runs it back for a touchdown. All right, it's 14 nothing. Fourth quarter, it's getting scary. Akron, then their true freshman quarterback, rolls out, starts going backwards, gets tackled in the end zone, ball pops out, Buffalo jumps on it, 21 nothing. Then Akron finally puts the drive together, goes down the field, and then obviously just, I think threw a pick or turned it over on downs. That summed up my – overall college football betting season, especially in the MAC and with Akron. The other team is UMass. They're just so bad. Fuck UMass, fade UMass into oblivion. And uh, that's one of the worst college football teams I've ever seen in my entire life. Defense was so pathetic. Offense was bad. UMass is the new UConn. And I think I don't think we're going to see a new UMass for quite some time. Uh, so those are the two happy trails I'll start with. And, and UMass already lost their defensive coordinator, you said? UMass already lost their defensive coordinator. I think he's been hired as a position coach uh, under Halfley at, at BC. At a high school? And, yeah, in, at a high school uh, in, in Canada. Um, what do you got? UMass, UMass football, let me just say this. Next year's T-shirt is going to be UMass is UMass, right? It ain't going to be anybody. UMass is UConn. UMass is UMass. And I think the smartest thing that we can all do right now is open up a parlay card and stick the opponent of UMass on it for every single week next year and just cash it at the end of the year. Nice little Christmas bonus because this program is so far off from a coaching perspective, from they don't even scholar, they haven't even filled out all their scholarships. They only have like half the team has scholarships, the other half doesn't. Uh, they can't recruit anybody. Um, so, anyways, next year. Uh, Holy shit, hold on. I got to say something. UMass. So UConn is moving to independent, right? Yes. So next year, next year UConn opens the season September third against UMass. We have to talk about this UMass. first week. UConn, UMass, uh, and then they go to Illinois, and then Maine comes to UConn. Um, we can pull a we can pull a Liberty in New Mexico State and schedule people twice. Army, Army will take them twice. And then <laughs> let me pull up the UMass schedule. If you type in UMass schedule, it'll pull up their academic schedule. That's how you know if you have a bad football team. If you type in the Alabama <laughs> schedule, it pulls up their football schedule. Uh, 2020 UMass schedule. Get ready for this one. October 17th at in Vision Stadium in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> UMass at Akron. Akron with revenge. Remember when Akron lost to UMass? Akron with revenge next October 17th. And then they close out the year. Home game against Army. Army's on all these shitty team schedules. And then they're at Liberty. 
You have sacrificed and labored for years to make this day a reality, and we are proud of you. Congratulations. That's your UMass schedule. Today. Say, okay. how is how is Arkansas football not picking up on some of these these terrible independent teams? But yeah, so let's let's continue happy trails. Let's get off UMass football. We'll be back to handicap them against UConn. I'm going to say goodbye to Rocky Long. You have retired. Uh, I'm not sure if you have retired or if you're having problems with the administration or you're done with recruiting or you keep uh, losing coaches. Uh, here's what I know: Rocky Long has been absolutely atrocious on the offensive side of the football to where they could only score, you know, I think they averaged, what, 17 points per game against power against uh, non-FCS teams. They went to a spread attack, but we're still running-based. They have been a headache, uh, a pain in the ass to handicap from the offensive end. Uh, the defense you could always rely on, almost always straight unders. And then you get into the bowl game. Last year they got blanked by Ohio. This year they score almost 50. 50? Who are you? And two years ago was one of the worst bad beats in a bowl I've ever seen against Army. Goodbye, Rocky Long. I know you're going to end up as a defensive coordinator somewhere after uh, your short retirement, but I won't have a problem not handicapping your offense. My last goodbye really is to this Missouri bowl ban. I, I would like to thank, as, as, a, as a person that is a part of the Razorback program for life, I would like to thank the Missouri bowl ban, the ludicrous Missouri bowl ban that was a cloud over their head the entire season, even after Kelly Bryant transferred. They got Barry Odom fired. Uh, Barry Odom lost the team. The team wasn't playing for anything towards the end of the season, had struggled to beat Arkansas, and they fired him. The administration fired him for Drinkwitz, and now Arkansas has a new defensive coordinator in the form of Missouri's head coach. But the Missouri Bowl ban was just a cloud over the program the entire year for what was supposed to be a team that I think closed in, in the market in Vegas with a win total of nine. I mean, it just everything went south downhill. You and I talked about it. We just kind of ignored it. What happens when they take their first loss? Will the, will the air kind of be, you know, punched out of the sail? Will they not have anything left? Uh, will the emotion be gone yeah, from this team? That advice and faded them even more than we did. Kelly, Kelly Bryant fumbles at the goal line against Wyoming. They lose that Wyoming game, and the rest of the season's lost. So Missouri Bowl ban, just a lost season, and, and, and happy trails. Happy trails to another shitty Arkansas football season. All right, <laughs> let's move on to third down before we get out of here the final segment of the podcast we'll have a live show of the actual podcast uh we're going to talk the fcs national championship saturday at noon on abc in frisco texas the first thing to note here over under opened at 51 it's down to 49 and a half 49 that's mainly because of weather there's going to be 20 25 mile an hour winds snow in the morning 36 degrees by kick not ideal throwing conditions when you look at this, when you look at this game, these two teams were clearly the two best teams in the country this year, and they had similar strengths of schedule. And if you look at a lot of the defensive metrics, it's North Dakota State's secondary is dominant, and James Madison's run defense is dominant. And North Dakota State, they have a quarterback who didn't throw an interception this year, freshman, but they rely on their rushing attack and their offensive line. They have two All-Americans on the offensive line. They have four backs who had at least 600 yards rushing this year. No other team had more than two. This is a team that just grinds it out. But James Madison has one of the best rush defenses of FCS, historically good at the FCS level. I think they finished second in yards per attempt allowed, like at like 2.2, but they only allowed like 61 yards rushing per game. That's the second-best single-season total since 2008 at the FCS level. Dimitri Holloway, linebacker, leads that group, could potentially play at the next level. They have two All-American defensive ends. This team just lives in the backfield. Um, you know, they could get 9, 10 tackles for losses. So this is a run defense that is stout. 
and you want to know how stout they are, look no further than when they played West Virginia. That's on, that's James Madison's only loss this year. And if you look at like Sagarin, by the way, he has both these, he has James Madison rated ahead of West Virginia. And I'm still mad that I took seven in that game and pushed. James Madison should have won that game. They held West Virginia to 13 first downs. Total yards, they outgained them. Yards per play, they were better. They lost two fumbles and threw a pick. I mean, that was the difference in the game. But you want to go and look at a rush defense. This is against a West Virginia team that averaged about 4.9 yards per play against a top 10 hardest schedule at the FBS level. They held West Virginia to about a half a yard below that season average. But from a rushing perspective, West Virginia ran the ball 24 times for 34 yards. So with the wind here, you know, I I think it's going to limit both passing attacks. James Madison, you know, North Dakota State is an excellent secondary. But the North Dakota State rush defense isn't as elite as the James Madison rush defense. Now, North Dakota State probably has a better rush offense, but I I just think that this James Madison defense can contain North Dakota State on the ground. It's one of the only defenses I think that can really do it other than, you know, you know, really profiles similar a lot of their rush defense stats, but James Madison is even better. The team that North Dakota State barely beat at home, nine to three. Um, and, and I'm talking about Illinois State in the college football playoff at home. Now this is going to be in Frisco, Texas. So I love this. I love this James Madison defense. And then on the other side of the ball, you know, and these two teams met in the national championship two years ago. North Dakota State ended up winning 17-13. And this is a team that in, in the playoffs at the FCS level is 35-2, and two, which is just insane. And that, that game was a thriller. I think this will be really close as well. But I just think James Madison, which is just across – they're so well-rounded. Great special teams. They're number two on third down defense, number two on third down offense. Really efficient quarterback in Ben DiNucci, the transfer from Pitt. But I, what I think the difference will be besides that James Madison run defense is just a couple big plays from the big play receivers on James Madison. And it's not going to be huge downfield passing. It's Brandon Polk and, and space getting him, you know, just a quick wide receiver screen. He's a transfer from Penn State. He can just – he's a, an explosive play waiting to happen if you get in the ball in space or just on a quick screen, quick slant. And then the other guy to keep – an eye on is a guy who played in that national championship two years ago, Riley Stapleton, 6'5", senior receiver, who in that game had seven catches for 107 yards and a touchdown. They can use his size, I think, in the red zone, maybe a little fade. So I think just a couple of plays from uh, a couple of their big play receivers mixed with their run defense in the low-scoring game. I think James Madison gets this – 20 to 17, I'll say. So I like James Madison and uh, the under. What do you see? Yeah, definitely the under here. Definitely the first half under, especially with the weather and taking a team that generally plays in the dome. James Madison dealt with this kind of weather against Northern Iowa. Uh, Not a high scoring affair whatsoever. Uh, You know, less than 20 points in that game. You know, when you mentioned that James Madison is a team that wants to rush and it's a team that can stop the rush, probably a slow paced game. And if you look at these teams in the red zone, they both rank in the top 20 in red zone defense. And Stuck already mentioned that the James Madison is second in FCS and third down conversion percentage on defense. North Dakota State isn't that far off. I mean, they've had over 200 attempts against them too on third down, and they rank 14th. So both these teams are real stout on, on defense, and it's just a thing where James Madison is going to be able to overpower them, which is probably going to be the last time. This was about as close to a rebuilding effort as you could get. 
uh, considering from a quarterback position, from a coaching position out of North Dakota State. So the play is to take the first half under to back James Madison here. And then when FCS odds pop up sometime between now and next season, uh, you're going to want to take North Dakota State. There you have it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate you all. And it's been a fun season. It wasn't as profitable as I as last year. Man, last year was fun. But there was you're not going to have – perfect seasons every year and last year everything just aligned right for me luck everything but we will be back as strong as ever next year let's have a great college football championship uh we'll be back for the live show let's crush the props the live betting and uh i wish all of you well and uh happy new year and colin any final parting words no i same as you i look forward to a a, a fantastic national championship that'll have uh two quarterback i told my sons this my sons are 12 and 13 I said, this national championship is so important because you're going to get through college for the next 14 years. You're going to hear Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow. That's how big of a college football game this is because that's going to, those two names are going to dominate the NFL. This season, I think everybody would agree, was a little bit tougher. The transfer portal has just kind of wreaked havoc on college football. Uh, returning production doesn't mean as much, so don't get caught up in the offseason. Early bowl season has been tougher to handicap. Lower volume because of the new early signing date. Coaches, it's just... It's just a lot more fluid than college football used to be. You know, there's a lot more players sitting out for the NFL these days. But at the heart of it from, you know, week to week, I think, you know, it's just going to be another, we'll have another fantastic year next year. I I think as college football evolves, uh, we have to evolve as handicappers too. And as the market has gotten smarter this year, especially with Vegas and Circus Sports setting the lines, we have to evolve also. We have to be smart enough to know who's better at success rate and explosiveness and finishing drives. We have to know these things when those lines get set by a sharp group out in Las Vegas. And that's what we're going to do next year. Yeah. As the market gets more efficient, we have to get even smarter and spend even more time in order to find those edges, which we will have to put in even more time next year in order to stay ahead of the curve. And by the way, it's a really important game for just where Clemson is in the college football landscape. Are they the new Alabama with a win? This would be a third national title since 2016 and uh, back-to-back years in three or four. That's the new dynasty and the make it if they win this. Let me ask you a question before we sign off. So I, we placed a, a, a national championship ticket on Georgia before we walked out of the Westgate last year. If Jamie Newman announces Georgia or Jamie Newman announces Oregon, or we walk, I mean, we can just assume Ohio State Clemson is the championship game next year, but there's going to be two other competitors inside the college football playoff. Is the Jamie Newman decision for Georgia, it's going to sway me in which team that I think is also going to join them in the college football playoff. Because if that announcement comes by the time we walk out of Westgate, that's probably the team I'm going to lay a ticket down on. Yeah, it looks like he's he's going to be... I, I think that last I heard is he's going to transfer to Georgia. For those that don't know, there's a GA uh, that is at Oregon right now who was on Wake Forest's roster and is close friends with Jamie Newman. So there is a connection between Jamie Newman and Oregon, and that's why. And not only that, I mean, they don't have an offensive coordinator right now. So it's kind of like, where's Joe Moorhead going to land? Where's Jamie Newman going to land? These are still two variables up in the air. If both those pieces were to fall on Oregon, I could see myself departing with some money on Oregon. If Jamie Newman lands at Georgia – I can see myself, you know, putting some money down on the dogs again. Yeah, and uh, by the way, the, avoid the Big 12. I think that, you know, even if you fall in love with a Big 12 team, this is going to be what happened this year to Oklahoma, black eye for the conference. So even if you have a team that's on the fringe, I mean, not only have they shown they can't compete, the committee now has reasons to say, you know what, I'm not going Big 12. I'm going with another SEC. Okay. And there's not even going to be that much 
backlash after what we've seen for the Big 12, especially the embarrassment this year. So even if you love an Oklahoma team or someone else in the Big 12, I think Texas is going to be significantly improved, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for a Big 12 team after what we've seen. They may give a team like Oregon, who is building themselves to look like an SEC team from four years ago. They may give a team like that a shot over a Big 12 team. Yeah, I, I got to look. I'm going to look at what some of the recruit, recruitings are doing. But, it, I mean, I, I did see that Georgia has, you know, if they get Newman and what they have, Jermaine Burton and Arian Smith, who were two of the top six rece- receiving recruits this year in, in 2020, are both going to Georgia. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to look there. We might be deja vuing with a Georgia <laughs> ticket. So, um, thanks again for listening. I have my awards for a couple people for reviews. I'll, I'll tweet them out. I, I didn't have time to pull the, the names. But thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the live show and all weekend in Vegas. And uh, we'll see you soon. Oh, and by the way, college basketball. We're going to be having college basketball episodes. We're not going anywhere. We're still going to have NFL through the <laughs> NFL. College basketball episodes we're going to have once a week on Thursdays. It'll be released on Fridays, just like last year, if you recall. Myself, Colin, Mike Randall. So we're just saying bye to the college football diehards that don't care about college basketball, but I'm excited for college basketball too. That's it for me. Cheers. Peace out. We're finished talking.